0: Oh, we're
3: recording. Oh, this is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't even smile.
2: <laughs> oh, I gave up on that. that. That thing never works in my favor.
0: <laughs> hey there, and welcome back to SheBuilds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is Living Legends, we will be talking about ladies who are alive and over 80 years of age who have contributed to their professions and continue to inspire us to this day. Literally living legends. Today, we're going to continue talking about Denise Scott-Brown with part two of her story. I'm Lizzie Rahr, drinking a hot toddy to stay warm in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nurjiti.
3: I'm Nurjiti Rivas, drinking coffee with Baileys. Probably the last time I'll be recording an episode from this apartment, coming to you from Houston, Texas.
2: And I'm Jessica Rogers, drinking a refreshing Coca-Cola based out of Miami, Florida. All right, it's time for our disclaimer. The three of us are not experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us and leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning.
0: Okay, Let's do a quick recap of Denise's life up until this point and what we talked about last week. Denise was born in Nkana, Zambia, on October 3rd, 1931, to Jewish parents Shim Lakovsky and Phyllis Hepker. They soon moved to Johannesburg, where she grew up in a modernist house that her mom's friends designed for them.
3: Denise's mom had gone to architecture school before dropping out to help her family. And after her mom's classmates designed their home, Denise knew
2: she wanted to be an architect. So after high school, she enrolled at the Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg to study architecture. While she was there, she met and fell in love
0: with Robert Scott Brown. During their last year at WITS, students would work in a year-long internship, and Denise decided to go work in London. She left Robert behind and went to work for Frederick Gibbard few weeks after she started working there, she went to the AA and took the entrance exam and was accepted.
3: She transfers to the AA and is exposed to tons of new ideas like new brutalism and mannerism. After she graduates in 1955, Robert comes to London to meet her and they get married on July 22,
2: 1955. She became a registered architect in Britain in 1956 and then she and Robert decided to travel around Europe. They attended CM summer course in Venice and then worked at a firm in Rome before deciding to go home to South Africa.
0: They realized that they still wanted to learn more about urban planning in order to better work in Africa. So their friends suggested that they go to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia because Louis Kahn was teaching there.
3: They studied there for a year and then during the summer of 1959, they got into a car accident and Robert died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital.
2: Denise was devastated and went home to South Africa, but returned to school in the fall because she didn't know what else to do. She graduated with her master's in city planning in 1960.
0: Okay, so we left off, and Denise is a newly graduated widow in a foreign country. Are you ready to continue Denise's story? Born ready. Let's do this. Okay, so Denise was freshly graduated, and she immediately took an assistant teaching position at Penn. So she decided to stay put in Philadelphia for the time being. She and Robert had always intended to return to Africa, but I think it was still too fresh for her to return. Mm. Understood. It makes sense. So just as a side note, while she's teaching at Penn, she's simultaneously doing a master's in architecture. Okay. You know, because why not?
2: Yeah, just casually pursuing, what, a second master's, you know? Just just throwing that out there. Yeah.
3: Okay, this is so impressive because— Even though it's pretty common, I mean, all of our TAs were getting their master's in architecture, right? But still, as I mentioned before, while I was in school, I could barely remember slash make time to take care of myself. I cannot imagine having a job, and on top of that, one that required me to be present with students and answer their naive little questions? Like, no. I have so much respect for TAs.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at Denise's first faculty meeting at Penn— they started talking about the Furness Library on campus that was built in 1890. So this building, it's a really traditional red brick building. Very Gothic, very classic. And during this meeting, they're all talking about whether or not they should support tearing down the building. Mm -hmm. Was it falling to pieces?
3: This sounds like a historical marker. Unless it's hideous. (laughs) If it's hideous, well. But if not, (laughs) they got to save it.
2: I mean, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's one thing to tear down something for structural reasons, but to tear down just because it's not in style, I don't know, seems wrong to me. Where are my preservationists at?
0: <laughs> right. Jessica's sort of on the right idea there because remember, this is 1960. So all of these faculty members are modernists. Mm. And most of them were gung ho to tear down old stuff to build something new and modern. Mm. And well, as you can probably surmise from last week's episode, Denise was kind of over modernism or the ideas behind it, right? Mainly the idea that architects know what the people want best and that they should impose their ideas on people without asking what the users want. Mm.
3: Yeah, that's the bad side of modernism and thinking architects know better.
0: I mean, we do.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But— Only if we do our research and truly understand people's needs. And while I'm a modernist at heart, I'm also for historic preservation. So I'm glad that this building had Denise on its corner. What is she going to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I can also see that Denise is having her little like ought and shall or is versus ought argument in her head. Um, (laughs) Like from last episode. Um, But yeah, what does Denise end up doing?
0: Okay, so Denise is like, uh, excuse me, we should definitely not tear this down. And she goes head-to-head with the dean of the school and debates with them all about why they should save the building. This is her first staff meeting, by the way. (laughs) She eventually wins them over after a lengthy debate.
3: (laughs) How endearing is that?
2: This lady's a Gryffindor. She's brave and stands up for what's right. I just like that she is brave enough to go against all of these people
0: on her first day. Yeah. (laughs) She's a little crazy. Okay. So after this meeting, this guy comes up to her and he's like, you know, I agreed with everything you said. And she was like, well, then why didn't you say something? Why didn't you, (laughs) you know, back me up? And he then introduced himself as Robert Venturi or Bob.
2: Here we go. What a meet cute. Yeah. Emphasis on the cute. Even though I think it's cute. Yeah. But we're going
0: we're gonna to make it cute. <laughs> he actually said, he like introduced himself in the first sentence. But, you know, I had to leave you in a little bit of suspense. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. S-C, S-C, S-C. So, it sounds like Bob was a little bit of an outsider with the faculty at Penn, which is why he didn't speak up. Uh, He didn't quite fit in with them. mm -hmm. And they all said that he shouldn't be there because he likes history and historic architecture. And he and Denise, though, had very similar ideas, and he was also into mannerism like she was. You know, Mm -hmm. he liked historic architecture that had decoration and stuff like that. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, just as a reminder, because mannerism is not super popular today— it, mannerism was a precursor to Baroque. It was a response to the Renaissance that focused on extreme sophistication, novelty, and complexity. So that's what she was into. And apparently, Robert was too. Learning from the
0: past. Yeah. Right. I mean, it makes sense that they would agree. hmm So, the two of them were each teaching a theory course, and they would plan the courses together so that they coordinated. They did this from 1960 to 1965— And a coworker one time made a comment to Denise saying, you should marry Bob. She was like, it's not like that. We're just good friends. Plus, I mean, she's still pretty fresh off her husband dying, right?
3: Yeah. Okay, that was a huge shock. So there ain't no rush. Take your time. Right. I'm glad, though, that she found a kindred spirit where she was at. And that they were able to navigate teaching theory at a place that thought so differently from them. You know, I wonder if Bob
0: felt really alone until she arrived. I bet he did.
2: Yeah. Mm, good point. Okay,
0: so in 1965, Denise finished her master's in architecture, and she took teaching positions in California. So, she drove across the U.S. visiting Birmingham, New Orleans, Dallas, San Antonio, Phoenix, and L.A. She taught at UC Berkeley in the spring and at UCLA in the fall. She continued to travel around the Southwest and loved the landscape there because it reminded her of home in the Feld.
3: Yeah, get your masters on the news. Congrats. Whoop, whoop.
2: <laughs> I wonder if Denise saw some of the landscapes from our episode 62, Lady Ruth Shellhorn. Mm. Because, you know, she did that in Southern California. So I wonder if there was like maybe some crossover
3: maybe yeah,
2: adventures there.
3: Yeah. Also, don't you love all the traveling that she keeps doing?
2: Oh, I love it. And her list of cities, I think it's a good mix of the U.S. landscape, so that sounds fun.
0: Mm-hmm. So while she was still at Berkeley, she went to Vegas. She was very intrigued by it. She wrote in her journal that the Dunes Hotel had faculty rates, and so she took a bus down the Strip taking photographs of all the neon signs. Hmm. So— When we started
3: discussing this story, I was actually traveling to Vegas. So I made a note to look it up to see if I could go on a solo art venture to the Dunes Hotel and take my own pictures. Like a Denise pilgrimage. Yeah. But sadly, I don't think that it exists anymore because I couldn't find it on Google Maps. And I asked a few locals like, hey, can you take me to the Dunes Hotel? And they're like, the what?
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing about Vegas, though. It's constantly changing. So I feel like a lot of those places Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily there anymore, sadly. Sad. Mm -hmm. So when Denise was teaching at UCLA in 1966, she invited Bob to come and be a critic for her studio. And she also said, we have to go to Las Vegas. She had already been back three more times, and she invited Bob because she thought he was the only one who would understand what she saw in it. So she and Bob went to Vegas for four days in 1966. Guys, this
3: is historic. We are listening to history in the making right now.
2: (laughs) I have goosebumps. I feel like we know about this trip in some
0: shape or form,
2: but I'm loving this origin story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So even to this day, Vegas is very polarizing with architects, right? People don't think of it as high-level architecture. It's seen as kitsch and gauche, right? Mm -hmm. But when Denise first went to Vegas, she was overwhelmed by all of the glitz and said, quote, is this love or is this hate? I said, I don't know. I said, photograph it before it goes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) she also made the comment that even though architects tend to think lowly of Vegas as an urbanist, she saw that people, quote, voted for Vegas with their feet. Right? And still do today. Mm -hmm. I really,
3: really like Vegas. Because like Denise said, people flock to Vegas. It's a place that responds to a variety of people's wants or needs. So it's doing something right. And number two, I really like that Vegas knows exactly who it is. It's not pretending to be something it's not. (laughs) Architecture there is all about attracting attention. Like, that's (laughs) what it's there for. It's not hypocritical. Take it or leave it. I'm actually happy that I have a small project there.
2: I want to know more about this project. <laughs> but it is, Vegas is a very interesting city. When I went for the first time, naturally, I went with family and we stayed on the strip. But I have extended family that live in the outskirts of Vegas. So that was also really interesting to explore. Just these two, like,
3: mm-hmm. opposing
2: things all in one city. So
3: The dichotomies just keep coming. They keep
2: coming. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right, Nerjity. Vegas is completely authentically Vegas, Mm -hmm. right? Now, the other thing about Vegas is that it goes through changes every decade or so, right? Like kind of how we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Vegas that Bob and Denise saw is not what it is today. Mm -hmm. However, there are similarities today, primarily the focus of lots of neon and huge signs everywhere. Essentially, it was the anti-modernist place. And so it intrigued Denise.
3: <laughs> There's something so very interesting about that, don't you think? Like the constant facelifts mm-hmm. that are happening. Yeah. But then also its essence, it's everlasting. Yeah. The dichotomies.
2: Yeah. I really like Vegas. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what Denise's thoughts are now of what Vegas is in this decade, I guess. But I guess it has some of the same stuff. Like, like you guys are saying, the essence is still very much still there. So
0: yeah. Well, Bob was also intrigued. Denise said he became a more relaxed human being. They drove down the strip and into the desert and took pictures of each other there. And at the end of the four days, they were in love. She said that they were sitting in a bar one night and then suddenly they were holding hands. Bob said, first I fell in love with Las Vegas, then I fell in love with Denise. Well,
3: I just love how all of the romance in this story always has the backdrop or, like, architecture and traveling, you know? It just sounds like the quintessential way two architects would fall in
2: love. (laughs) This needs to be made into, like, a movie, and I think a Hallmark movie would be perfect for this story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so anyway— Vegas, right? It's great, blah, blah, the dichotomies. But I did not find it relaxing at all. The heat, there's cigarette smoke, there's drunk people, but, you know, to each their own. And I'm glad that they found love through it all. So (laughs) it's still cute, but I did not find it relaxing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, after their trip to Vegas, they kept seeing each other. And one day they were in a taxi and Denise turned to Bob and said, Will you marry me? and he said yes yes and yes <laughs> she asked him i yep. did not think that
3: i could fall for this lady more than i already have and then she goes and continues breaking stereotypes left and right yeah i'm so glad that bob knew the right answer three times over that's right
2: <laughs> but like why do i think that he probably would have would have said yes that night in vegas anyway <laughs>
0: For sure. (laughs) So they got married in Santa Monica on July 23rd, 1967. She wore this really cool dress also. It was like a simple sheath style dress, but it had big black block lettering all over it. Yeah. I'll put a picture in the show notes. Yeah, it definitely
2: doesn't look like the typical wedding dress. It looks very graphic and like modern-esque. It's cool though.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. I would have liked to wear something like that for my wedding. That's
2: cool. Ooh, yeah. I wonder what people would have said, no, Judy, if they saw you wearing that.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Denise moved back to the East Coast and started working at Bob's firm, Venturi and Roche. In 1969, she became a partner at the firm and it was renamed Venturi Roche and Scott Brown. In 1968, Bob and Denise both started teaching at Yale as visiting professors. Along with a graduate assistant, Stephen Eisenor, they ran a 12-week studio called Learning from Las Vegas with 10 students, and it included a 10-day trip to the Strip. Mm.
2: And here is where we are all most likely introduced to this group. Yeah. Yes, I think every history or theory class has Learning from Las Vegas in their curriculum. So here we go.
0: So one of the hotels comped their rooms, and they spent 10 days mapping and analyzing how people moved through the city. They took lots of photographs and mapped patterns of distribution compared with other cities like New Haven, where Yale was. And they even got to use Howard Hughes' helicopter for an hour to take aerial photographs, which I thought was sort of wild.
2: <laughs>
0: Amazing! This is where I would want to travel
2: back in time, too. Like, I would want to travel back in time so that I could be a part of this studio. Because
0: it sounds like fun. Right? Mm-hmm. Denise compared Vegas to a bazaar or a market. But instead of the colors and smells that draw you in, Vegas used signs and neon. And even though the strip feels very chaotic and overwhelming, what they discovered through their analysis was that it was actually very navigable and the signage really works.
3: Of course it did. I'm glad that she was able to prove that. I also really like all the conclusions and parallels that she's drawing. It's very true and very poetic. It's powerful.
2: Yeah, because I can tell you one thing. The smells of Vegas do not draw you in. Like, I mentioned the cigarettes (laughs) and the drunk people, right? Like, no.
3: (laughs) (laughs) To me, it smells like flowers. Like, the hotels smell nice.
2: (laughs) Some of them, but when you're walking through the casino, it does not. Oh, maybe, yeah. Anyway, I do like the comparison to the bazaars. It's navigable. It's strategic with signage and how it guides people from place to place. So that part, I liked. People in scantily clad clothing. So (laughs) yeah, that was my experience of Vegas. (laughs) Maybe they went during a different time, not during EDC. Mm.
0: In 1971, Denise gave birth to their son, James Venturi. I don't have much info on their son, but I do think he works in film because I read a few articles from back in 2009 that said he was working on a documentary about his parents. Sadly, I couldn't find that it had been released anywhere, but I would really like to see it.
2: Mm.
3: Yes, please. If it does not exist, it needs to.
2: I know. Agreed. Who better to tell their story than their son? Suck so it.
0: Yeah. In 1972, Denise, Bob, and Stephen published a book of their findings from this studio called Learning from Las Vegas. They were trying to get people to take the city's architecture seriously. Denise said, I brought from Africa my xenophobia of things non-African, and from London my brutalist sensibility, and applied them to America. Looking at Las Vegas, I said to myself, This thing you hate could be the seed of your creativity— Learn to understand it the way it is. Suspend judgment briefly. Be less rigid. You might find the strip exciting, even beautiful, and perhaps artistically inspiring.
3: All right. I want to put that on a t-shirt, that whole thing, (laughs) because it's so true. As architects, well, as people, but really as architects, we can be so judgmental. And Denise is helping me see how limiting that can be. Even if I don't agree with something, if I can find a way to understand it, then I can learn from it. You know, speaking of this, there's a building in Houston that I dislike with a passion. That's the nicest way I can say it. I should go and really analyze it, study it, and I bet that I would become a better architect for it. And I can publish a book. I'll call it Learning from Hideous Building. Oh, well, (laughs) there goes my judgment-free zone. (laughs) 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 Whoops.
2: <laughs> Real. That's also a big shirt. That quote.
3: We need to bookshop the name of the, the book.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Maybe what? workshop that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> workshop. That's what I wanted to say. Workshop the title.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone.
2: Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost,
1: we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure whether you're an architect contractor engineer or just love a good story this podcast is for you
2: yeah beam penetrations that's a fun topic on this project
1: follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to unstruct from within your walls hear the story behind how your building stands today
3: Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with
0: Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects,
3: designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design
0: visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. Okay, Jessica sort of alluded to this already, but who remembers reading this book in school, right? It's the standard reading material for almost all architecture students, including us. So what does everyone remember of this book?
3: Yeah, sadly, I don't remember as much as I wish I did right
0: now.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think we would need to do a charrette if we're going to talk about this. Sure.
0: High-level thoughts, you know.
2: like (laughs) I remember reading this book. So it talks about signage and wayfinding, some of the concepts that we had just talked about between this episode and a little bit of last episode— now, when we talk about signage, there is an argument on, like, ornamentation. So, that would lead to one of the most, like, poignant parts of the book, which is the concept of the duck versus the decorated shed, which is what I remember. Yeah.
3: Okay. That I vaguely remember. So, the duck was literally a building in the shape of a duck that sold ducks. Like, right. yeah. So, this represented a theory for creating architecture that is extremely literal, that is… Its function is represented in the shape of the building versus decorated sheds, which are generic structures with added signage that shows or explains their purpose. Like, for example, big box buildings or casinos or roadside hotels, restaurants with big signs. So Denise and Robert explored these buildings and ideas and how they might influence architecture through their study of the Las Vegas
0: Strip. And that's what we read on that book, Learning from Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, not surprisingly, even though this project was originally Denise's brainchild, right? She was the one who brought Bob there. But she is often overlooked in the credit of this project, and everyone notes it to Bob instead of her. Mm. It was her idea that architecture should be designed with people in mind and say something to the maximum number of people it can, rather than just appealing to educated architectural theorists. And that's what she saw in Las Vegas. Even when they published the book, they knew this would be an issue. So Bob wrote a note at the beginning of the book asking people to attribute the work and ideas in the book not to him alone, but to all of the contributors.
3: I commend that Bob had the foresight to know that this would be a problem and that he did what he could to get ahead of it. And it was important to him to give credit where credit was due. You know, I want to find this note and see how he worded it because people need things spelled out. Maybe he should have written that the inception of the idea belonged to Denise Scott Brown and that they grew it together until it belonged to all of them. But let me reiterate that the seed was planted by Denise. Mm-hmm. And still, people would have ignored it and jumped to their own conclusions. Who knows? Maybe it would have helped. Maybe.
2: Maybe. Agreed.
3: Yeah. Because wrongfully so, I'll admit that based on my own bias, I always thought that this was Robert's work and that Denise was an important collaborator until that award mess, which I'm sure we'll get into. We've talked about that before. Anyway.
2: hmm Double agreed. And I can't decide if I'm annoyed that Denise wasn't given this credit from the beginning or that I'm not surprised at all. Like, this book is a staple in the architectural theory and history classes and stuff. But yeah, why? Why don't we not know this then?
0: Yeah. So, this book was also thought of as a solution to, quote, the dead end of modernism, a feeling that was being expressed by many architects of the time, And it also birthed one of the more controversial eras of architecture, postmodernism. Oh, yeah. Here we go. (laughs) 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 Denise and Bob took these ideas from their book and started putting them into their work. They loved historic pieces of architecture that told you what type of building it was based on the architectural elements that it used. And also started to really utilize signage. For example... Columns on banks, pitched roofs on houses. When they worked on the Children's Museum in Houston, they used columns at the front entry, which showed a public museum typology. But they painted the columns bright yellow because it was a children's museum. So it's fun, right? And the idea was that it should tell you what it is. But if you weren't already sure, they also put a huge sign on top of it that says museum.
3: Whoa, hold up, hold the phone. You're telling me I can visit Denise' work in my own backyard? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to pause, stop this recording, because I need to take a quick trip. Our <laughs> Venture, here I come. Be right back.
2: I mean, they might be closed. No. Nope. Okay.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this sounds fun. Okay, I will encourage everyone to look at our show notes of this building. And please share your thoughts. Because my thought is that it's, it has a particular taste. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. That that's the nice way of saying it, because mm-hmm. we need to have an uncensored version of this episode. And I could tell you my real thoughts. Good job. To- to trying, trying. <laughs> All of that is to say that hearing Denise's description of her ideas behind it, this building makes sense. And it definitely achieves what it is designed for. Kinda like Vegas. So I could see right. I could see that connection, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how it looks.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, over the years, postmodernism went a bit wild. And a lot of designers focused on the fun and the jazziness of the style. And not necessarily the theory behind it, right? It became known for its bold shapes and bright colors. Very 80s. And it had a very short-lived era for about only a decade because of that. And Denise doesn't like a lot of these interpretations because they didn't have meaning behind their choices like the projects that she did have. Mm. Understanding postmodernism
3: through her eyes changes everything. There's a reason why all those moves were made. The architectural decisions had meaning behind them. You know, I didn't know that this is what postmodernism was meant to be. I only know what it became, and I have to agree with Denise, it's not the best.
2: Agreed. Totally agree with you on that. If you are around in the 80s or saw the remnants of it in the 90s, I can understand Denise's frustration.
0: Yeah. And postmodernism got kind of a bad rap after that, right? Like, that's kind of— we have those preconceived notions about it too, right? hmm And because of that, Denise and Bob sometimes had trouble having enough work because they were very associated with postmodernism. So after this— Architecture went back to a more corporate modernist style, very glassy facades with steel. And ironically, the Strip in Vegas, which originally was like the poster child of postmodernism, also ended up moving towards corporate modernism, which you can see in a lot of the new buildings. Uh, Yeah, it did.
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, I wonder what it'll look like in 20 years.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Even though they had trouble getting work at times, Venturi Scott Brown, as it was renamed in 1987, worked on many projects over the decades, including the Consul General Building in Toulouse, France, the Sainsbury Wing addition to the British National Gallery on Trafalgar Square in London, the Nico Hotel and Spa Resort in Japan, and even the restoration for the Furness Library on Penn's campus, the project that they first met over.
2: Oh, cute. Well, it seems like they had big projects when it came down to it, which is good. It also seems like they had a chance to travel, which is nice.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking that it's cool that they had some big international
0: projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I should note that most of these projects that I mentioned are projects that Denise was the head designer on. They weren't necessarily mm. Bob's projects. Tell him. Love it. Tell it. Yes, yes. In addition to these major projects, Denise also worked as an advocate planner for low-income communities that were being threatened by a new expressway in Philadelphia and on designs for various universities, including campus master plans and individual buildings, such as Pearlman Quadrangle at University of Pennsylvania, Baker Berry Library at Dartmouth, and the Palmer Drive Life Sciences Complex at University of Michigan.
2: Mm, We gotta love a good archivist. Also, who knew that campuses like Dartmouth, U of M, and UPenn could be credited to Denise? Wow.
3: Lizzie, does that make you like Denise even more?
2: (laughs) Of course. In
0: 1989, Denise published a paper called Room at the Top, Sexism and the Star System in Architecture. She had written the paper in 1975— but didn't publish it then because she was concerned about the backlash. She gives many examples of when articles were written about projects that she was the main designer on and Bob spent maybe two days looking at and the work was attributed to Bob Mm. instead of her or the firm in general, which she gave an example Mm. of one of the projects I mentioned before. Mm. Mm.
3: That is so infuriating. I wonder what was the straw that broke the camel's back and she decided to publish the paper. Because it took more than a decade for her to do it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Imagine the fear people live with when they know things aren't right, but also know what happens to people who expose such things. I mean, even us, we get backlash for the work that we're doing and the things that we say. And it's scary, but I think we are in an environment that is a lot more accepting of what we're saying than people were in 1975 and in 1989. Denise Just being brave again and again, her little Gryffindor self.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I also wonder what was the breaking point. Or was it more of her just like not caring? Or was it society? Maybe in the 80s, it was more pro-women, so Denise felt comfortable publishing the article. I can tell you one thing, though. I want to read this article.
0: Yeah. She writes, short of sitting under the drawing board while we were around it, there is no way for the critics to separate us out. Those who do hurt me in particular, but others in the firm too. And by ignoring as unimportant those aspects of our work where Bob has interfaced with others, they narrow his span to meet the limits of their perception. Wow. Mm.
2: This reminds me of our couples season, for some, it was easy to separate the work per couple. like yeah. But even then, the success of the project or the success of the firm was credited to the man. And I think that sucks about the concept of star architects, right? Yeah. The credit is given to one person. But we all know that it's not just one person that builds a building. It's a team. It's a whole office and a whole firm. So, yeah, yeah I can see her frustration.
0: She also wrote, Although I've been concerned with my role as a woman years before the rebirth of the movement, I was not pushed to action until my experience as an architect's wife. Honestly, guys, there are so many quotes from this essay and that I could put in our episode, and they're all examples of things that we've heard through the seasons that we've been doing this show in the past three years. I definitely recommend reading it. Mm-hmm. I want to read this. And then maybe we can
3: dedicate a charrette to discussing it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that.
0: Agreed.
2: It's also interesting, the concept of, like, the architect's wife. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know if we've touched it in our couple season, or maybe we did. But to just see it, like, from Denise's perspective, like, she notes that she is an architect's wife. But she's also an architect and a wife. Interesting.
0: Right. Well, and I think for her, it's interesting because— Well, a lot of times our women, like, that. maybe that made it possible for them to stay in the profession. But for her, Mm -hmm. when she became an architect's wife is when things changed for her, which I think is interesting. Because she was an architect. Right. And she didn't feel as much of that when she wasn't married to Bob. Mm Mm-hmm. So— she did write in the essay that Ada Louise Huxtable never did her wrong and always credited her correctly. So, shout out to Ada in the episode crossover.
2: Hey, oh yeah, oh hey,
0: that's our episode 31, lady, what's up? Oh yeah, Ada's a stand-up lady. Right. hmm So, two years after she published this essay, in 1991, Bob was nominated for the Pritzker Prize without Denise. hmm We've mentioned this before on the show, like Nerjiti said, but essentially, they nominated Bob alone. They petitioned the jury to award both of them since their work is a true collaboration that cannot be split between the two of them. Mm. However, the jury said that they couldn't give the prize to two people, even though they had done so in 1988. Mm. Bob received the award alone. Denise did not attend the ceremony. In his speech, he mentioned that it should have been the two of them up there.
3: This makes me tear up.
2: I'm sad and mad. That's all I want to say. Yeah, I'm more mad.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No sad,
2: just mad. Because WTF, I remember being angry about this then, and now I'm angry again.
0: (laughs) Right? Well, in 2013, Denise was speaking at an award ceremony for women in architecture and said, they owe me not a Pritzker prize, but a Pritzker inclusion ceremony. Mm. Let's salute the notion of joint creativity. This sparked two students at the Harvard GSD to start an online petition demanding that Denise be given the prize retroactively. Over 20,000 people went on to sign the petition. Unfortunately, the jury of the Pritzker Prize did not end up giving her the award, citing that because the jury had changed and three of the previous jurors had passed away, that they can't really revisit the decision. Denise said, I was very touched by the Pritzker petition. And that is my prize in the end. 20,000 people wrote from all over the world, and every one of them called me Denise.
3: She was moved and felt vindicated by the architecture community at large. It's moving.
2: I can only imagine how she must have felt to have this, like, wave of support. But also, boo to the committee. If these folks are dead, just give her the award anyway. (laughs) What are the dead folks going to do? You know, just... Denise deserves so much credit. And this concept of joint creativity, like, I love this term. More organizations should recognize this, especially when we're talking about partners. I do feel like this is changing
0: now, but still, like, Yeah. So, I'm not sure what year it was, but both Bob and Denise retired from practice in the 2000s. They continued to work on research projects they had been interested in, and Denise continued to write and take speaking engagements. In 2018, Bob died of complications from Alzheimer's. He was 93.
3: Oh, man. Well, I'm glad he lived a long, accomplished life alongside Denise.
0: Yes. So sad. I know. Denise is 92 years old today and still taking interviews. One of the sources I used for this episode was actually a podcast interview that Denise did in 2023. She still sounds like her mind is sharp, and she's speaking about her work and how she thinks of it now, years later.
3: Mm. Amazing!
0: Maybe we'll be able to reach her and get an interview, too. (gasps)
2: Oh yeah. Manifesting this. What an honor that would be.
0: Mm. Chills. All right. We've reached the second half of our episode, The Caryatid. This is where we select a woman living today who's doing her thing, furthering the profession, and whose work continues to hold the profession up, just like the caryatids or columns shaped like the women found on the Greek style buildings. Without further ado, this week's caryatid is. <laughs> Madeline Friesendorp. Ooh, yeah. So, Madeline is a Dutch artist and she's the co-founder of Office of Metropolitan Architecture, or OMA, which some listeners might have heard of, perhaps. <laughs> Madeline was born in Bilthoven, Netherlands, and attended Reedfield Academy in Amsterdam. She also attended classes at St. Martin's School of Art in London. In 1975, Madeline, along with her then-husband Rem Koolhaas, And Elia and Zoe Zanchelis founded the firm OMA.
3: I remember learning a little bit about Madeline on my own when I was in school because I was obsessed with OMA and I wanted to know more about the firm. So I'm excited to get reacquainted with her again.
2: Mm, Yeah, I don't remember this at all. Like, how did I not know this? When I think of OMA, I only think of REM. Yeah. Wow. Just shame.
0: I know. School does that. Shame. Now— Ladies, like we said, we know OMA. We know Rem Koolhaas very well. We're also quite familiar with the book Delirious New York, right? Right. 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 Well, the famous cover art where the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building are in bed together, called Fragrant Delight, is by Madeline. She created graphics and visuals for OMA in the early years of the firm. Many of her contributions have been overlooked, or reprinted without permission under the caption, Commissioned by OMA. Say what? How insulting.
2: Mm.
0: The imagery
3: of that book is iconic. It's so cool to know that it's all her. Yeah.
0: Mm In 2018, she was awarded the Ada Louise Huxtable Prize. Mm -hmm. And during her acceptance speech, she talked about, quote, the women written out of the script and talked about the many years that her contributions and Zoe's to OMA were overlooked.
3: Yeah. Preach, Madeline. Preach! Keep shedding light on your work and that of others, which should be rightfully attributed, studied, and admired. She and Denise inspire us to keep this work going.
0: Yeah. It was such a, like, when I read about her, I was like, this is like a mirror of Denise and Bob, so... It just felt right. It's right. Wow. Okay, before we say goodbye, we wanna say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Denise and Madeline along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you.
3: SheBuilds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com.
2: Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your gamblers, your Vegas goers, your cigarette smokers, your non-cigarette smokers, (laughs) the women that deserve credit, and just tell your women. People that you know. Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes, write us a review, and this will help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us.
0: We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at SheBuildsPodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, SheBuildsPodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on X at SheBuildsPod. Bye! Bye. Bye. Okay. So Denise was friendly. Denise was fresh. <laughs>